Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. We are also here with our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Now, today on the show, our featured guest is Stephen Page, uh, formerly of Bare Naked Ladies. I am It's Ben. <laughs> Everybody has a Stephen Page impression. We will get to Stephen in a bit. He's got a record out, uh, and I loved my conversation with Stephen. Uh, we will set that up in a little bit. But first, fellas, this is a big deal. I feel like every episode lately has been a big deal because we have something new to announce it is not only max and shane and myself here today we're also here with our friend and new podcaster jonathan popolis john how's, how's it going it's wait i was supposed to ask oh, you. okay well sure ask me john how's it going it's going great mike thanks for joining us here today <laughs> does anyone want to tell uh, our listeners why john is joining us on the michael much podcast right now it would feel like bragging if i said it so max you take over <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? You, well, because you should... no, you're excluded from it. So I figure you. Could... Oh, sure. Well, the the guys basically started their own spinoff podcast, which I'm not a part of, and uh, it's going to be part of the, the Mike on Much uh, feed, right? We're putting it in in the Mike on Much podcast, and you can find it here. And they're going to be reviewing. There's ten movies, ten classic films, and they're going to be talking about the strengths and how they hold up, right? Yeah, it, it's called the pedestal. Yeah. So movies that have been on a pedestal, we're going to watch them again mm-hmm. in 2018 and decide whether it's worthy of still being on the yeah. pedestal. Each episode we spend like half the episode, like we kind of break it in half where we actually kind of argue over first half is whether it deserves to be on the pedestal. Like for like, we'll, we'll take one of the movies was like Blair Witch Project. Sure. Um, and so we spend half of it being like, what, like why in the first place was it put on the pedestal in the first place? Does it still hold up? What are the, what are the, the best characters, best parts, things like that. And then we flip it over in the second half and go, Maybe why doesn't this deserve to be on the uh, pedestal? Which is kind of just half an episode of talking shit about old movies. Sure. And do you guys, <laughs> would you say you typically uh, align with your movie tastes? That's something listeners are going to have to find sure. out for themselves, right? Because we have 10 episodes like the guy said. Also, I think the origin of the podcast is interesting because this is something that was created. I'm actually not totally sure. From my perspective, we were chugging along doing the Mike a Much podcast. Mm-hmm. Shane came to my desk one day and basically just said... You guys had this idea for a podcaster. You, ha- I, I, how did it yeah. come about? Tell the people. John and I were talking. And John works in the building. John he, works he, in the he building. He has a similar job to you. Yes, a producer, he's, but it's right. Award-winning uh, director of all sorts of commercials and campaigns. He's basically exactly like uh, for for ostensibly he does what we do, right? You direct commercials, you yeah. write commercials, you and win I make awards, films as well, and <laughs> you do short films. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Name two of your short films. W4M and Dumb Luck are two of them. Tannenbaum. And people can find those, right? Yep. And one of them is an Arkell song. And then That's one right. Of them, one of my most recent ones. That's yeah. right. And he charged yeah. you a ton for sync. Right? Yeah. Ridiculous. I'm broke broke up our friendship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we were having a conversation via text. And then I said, oh, this, this would be a great uh, podcast conversation. We should make a podcast. Yeah. And then Poplis was down. And then I... The conversation well, was specifically about Dumb and Dumber. It was, it was yeah. specifically about how like it, like I've loved I've loved Dumb and Dumber so much since I was a kid, but I'm like I've, I've never really. When's the last time I actually took a step back and really thought about is this actually a good movie sure. or uh, do I just love it because my like ten year old self? I've been saying the same thing about Rush Hour. I'm like that's oh, the best film. Chris Tucker, yeah. Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. Yeah. Never touch a black man's radio. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you got, Chelsea Grandma? You're the text of the well, that's racist, Max. No, well, I'm kidding. <laughs> he was imitating Jackie Chan. <laughs> so, so, anyway, uh, rush hour impersonations right. aside, I, I approached Mike and I was like, "What do you think if we put it under like the Mike on Much umbrella?" And then Mike kind of had like a look on his face, like, "Oh, like it'd just be you two guys." <laughs> uh, so I was like, "I was like, yeah, like." And this was at a particular time where 
a lot was coming at Mike, and I felt like maybe he was overwhelmed with work, so I didn't want to ask him to stress him out, <laughs> but he's like, I want to be a part of this. He's like, I, I think, <laughs> I'm in. I think this is going to be good, and I'm a movie guy. I, I love movies. That's true. So I was like, shit, yeah, this, this is great. I just don't want to kill Mike, because you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> I, I certainly, I remember that time, and it definitely your read on my situation was correct. I think our friends can usually tell what, when any of us are kind of like, okay, that guy's at his breaking point. He's right in now. the shit yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. But my my extreme FOMO, and because I thought it was such a great idea <laughs> yeah. with the pedestal, I was like, I don't care if it kills me, and it's that, like that. Typically, is what uh, causes all of our worlds to spiral. <laughs> is that it, it's just like kind of probably doing too much and like booking booking ourselves a little like st- spreading ourselves a little too thin, but then also having the FOMO. Oh yeah, my god! I'm the same, like, I feel like I just say if anyone asks me anything, I just always kind of say yes and just kind of figure it out later. It's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. I'll make I'll the time because yeah, of course sure. the thing you say no to will be this huge success. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you say yes, it's always I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, everything I've yeah. said yes to. <laughs> yeah. How is this different than uh, the Ringers rewatchables? Well, rewatchables is I guess just picking any film and saying is this worth rewatching. We're sure. ta- we're picking classic films that are on a pedestal uh, that are like that top tier. Yeah, so, people hold I think in general in high esteem. Sure, They're considered sure. classics but on some level. I also think in rewatchables it is kind of like from better from mostly like a love fest on those old like they kind of sure. taking like point break and they spend they, they'll do nitpick stuff but for the most part they're talking about why do we love this movie so sure, much? Sure. We will take movies like no matter what even if there's dumb and dumber for instance is when we do we will spend half the episode talking how much we love it but we do dive deep into things that are like really wrong with these movies sure. and our personalities are just different like of course, what's of course. mike on much how is it different than any three white dudes talking right sure. like i'm not so concerned about we're the most different thing we just have unique perspectives sure, sure. Yeah, sure, john's a mensa member and he's like uh, kind of like a beautiful he's mind to drop that at a party <laughs> yeah too. of course well, i never he and our friend Dan Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. wait, I don't know. Wait, Dan's a Mensa member? Oh, Dan proudly is a Mensa member. Is he actually? You haven't talked about this with Never. Dan at a party? Never. I figured that's the first thing that comes up, like if you're a vegetarian oh, or wow. something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Bring this up. I gotta well, I think we mentioned uh, John's Mensa membership in six of the ten in episodes. Every, oh, like every episode. <laughs> well, that was one of your conditions when we started Oh, dating. yeah, thanks. So you've sure. never seen Dan at like a meeting or anything? <laughs> oh, yeah, all those Mensa meetings I go <laughs> Daniel, Jonathan, <laughs> we're not supposed to talk about outside the Mensa meetings. Sixty-two times three thousand. Yeah. <laughs> they just all start. They well, hit we each all other. Like, or... like idiot savants. Anyway, I would just use savant. But... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Pretty dumb. <laughs> and John's worked with you guys for a long time, and you've known John longer than me. But then the first time we met, I met John was at your old apartment, and we were watching basketball. Oh, we were watching hoops at my old apartment. Yeah, drinking rum then, out of your freezer. Right? It's been. You're making a uh, bare naked ladies reference. No, I wasn't. Oh, I thought you wanted to do. I wish I was that clever. No. Hey, by the way, before I get to that, you said it's been. That's from uh, Nirvana the band. Nirvana the band. But it's also from a lot of things. Comedy Bang Bang. They do that all the time. Yeah, because I know you're considered a bit of a comedy genius, uh, Shane. At least I am. Yeah. Uh, but 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 Greg goes. Oh no, he just stole that from this. Oh, he just well, stole that. From oh, that. my brother says yeah. that. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Oh geez, well, you're gonna like, set him off. Like, <laughs> first, I, oh boy. First off, I wear my influences on my sleeve, sure. and any time I do it, I'm like, oh, this is from that. Like you said, hurt people, hurt people. The other day, yeah. that's a common saying, but that's also from Greenberg, and that's something I started saying from Greenberg, and then other people started saying it, and then sure. I was like, hey, I'm the one who stole that from Greenberg. Sure, sure. But yeah, I. Anything like when I say prove it, that's from the movie Big Daddy, where John Stewart says it in the middle of an Adam Sandler speech. I always fess up to everything, uh, sure, sure. and that's what makes us right our influence. No, it's true. That is that is very true. Where's uh, it's going to be a good night 
from? That I actually did make up. That's from. Uh, Congrats. That stuck. Yeah. That is gonna from be a my. Good um, <laughs> yeah, I did that in a, my first failed VJ search uh, video. I was. Uh, hanging out with some girls and I was just I didn't know what to say so I decided to do an improv line I just went it's going to be a good night the implication that I'm going to be having sex with these two girls yeah. which of course I didn't comedy <laughs> genius yeah that's <laughs> hey, right I, I digressed earlier um, but then John uh, who I just met for the first time that night says you know my girlfriend girlfriend at the time she was my girlfriend at the time and I was like who's your girlfriend and it's uh, an old high school friend of mine Sarah Carpentier who mm-hmm. I had not heard or seen of in a long time and uh, you guys were dating for a couple of years and now you're married with we're a kid married. we have a baby yeah it's a small world we have old yearbooks with all Max oh pictures god in I can them. never see that oh yeah. man does uh, Max have like quotes and shit in his yearbook I don't or? know about quotes but there's like there are black and white pictures and uh, it's geez. hilarious it's pr- I've sent him pictures yeah. does your wife Sarah say that Max was a popular high school kid or? yeah you was the you were a school president I you were school president yeah. whoa <laughs> yep. liked by all yeah but it was um it's pretty much the same as I am now, like in terms of the same, same yeah. thing. Yeah. Did you have any enemies in high school? No, I don't think so. No. Wow. Our school wasn't, uh, when I'm actually kind of grateful for this, so not to get off topic, is that it wasn't like the typical high school experience where there's like the jocks and the cheerleaders and the nerds and the whatever. It was like 65% like like Asian kids, like 20, 25% like Italian and Portuguese. Like everyone just like kind of cared about their own business it wasn't like that typical like western high school experience and so i didn't i didn't have any of the trauma so something to do with it being out. sort of like a downtown yeah, it was toronto. like a downtown toronto high school so yeah, yeah i didn't su- suffer from any like the classic high school movie stuff speaking of high school movies we don't uh review the breakfast club but we do review 10 other great films <laughs> are you gonna tell us you're a master of the segue thank you <laughs> is breakfast club a movie that's on a pedestal for i think so i think so. i'd like to talk about it i think i, have, I think yeah. john hughes as far as his like canon people probably consider that I think a lot of people put that number one for themselves. Yeah. Above Ferris Bueller? Maybe Ferris. There might be some Dark Horse Uncle Buck people out there. I would be. I, I would love, love Uncle Buck. Buck. <laughs> <laughs> this is a preview of the pedestal right now, guys. Also, something for the listeners. If you do go, like we said, there's going to be 10 episodes dropped on its own pedestal feed, but we're going to sneak one onto the mic on much feed. We're going to Just so you a, get a taste. A sample yeah. episode. Why don't we put them all up? Or is that Because it's going to look ugly and be confusing, and you people might... Of, you'll, 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 something will be on this feed. There'll yeah. be definitely... By the time you <laughs> I'm hear into this, consolidating it. Yeah, Personally. so by the time you hear this one, sure. there will definitely be one up, and maybe we'll sprinkle another one in in a week or two. Maybe we'll, we'll hit you with a couple, but you can always, if you're digging what you hear or you want to hear one of the specific movies, go over to its main pedestal feed, and you will hear on maybe the first four. I actually struggled with the word pedestal. I kept saying pedestal. It's, it's the first thing you say in the first episode. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know why. I, I had trouble with that word. You're a good talker, too. That's weird. Fuck. Well, uh, guys, why am I not on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I thought they asked you. You were supposed to come on the Space Jam. I think episode. I was. Yeah, you were. Yeah, I don't know. You're not a big movie guy. No, I'm really not. So So there you go. I think that's your answer. (laughs) (laughs) The last conversation I remember we had on the podcast, uh, and I don't even know if it made one of our episodes because we went on for a while, is that you had gone and seen Hail Caesar by the Coen Brothers. Oh, yeah. And you came in and we recorded a pod. This is like whatever it would have been two years ago. And you were like, Hail Caesar's being praised by everybody. He's like, everybody loves him. I didn't like it because I went and saw it with Lauren. He's like, it was whatever. He's like, and then two days later, I went and saw How to Be Single with Dakota <laughs> Johnson and Rebel Wilson. It's like, it was so good. <laughs> so then I lost all my credibility. Basically. I won't say you lost your credibility. And there's something honest about that. And I did see uh, a bit of How to I think Anders Holm is also in How to Be Single. Is he? Yeah, and yeah. I know you're a big workaholics uh, yeah, guy. guy. Yeah. You don't really like challenging films, though. Uh, sometimes I do. I think my here's my issue is that I need, if I'm going to watch a good movie, like basically any movie, I have to be in the movie theater. 
I just yeah. oh. that's my problem. Is uh, that if I'm at home, I am not immersed in it as I show. What's your favorite art film? Art film, blue is the warmest color. <laughs> that's like a porno, Max. <laughs> oh, we all know why you like it. Uh, well, okay, name me some art films. I'll tell you if I like it. Is there any Coen Brother film that you like? Would, I, I love the Coen Brothers. Okay, yeah. So there's some pretty. Yeah. Do you like There Will Be Blood? Uh, I never watched that movie actually, which is crazy. Like, Corn Brothers, you like uh, No Country for Old Men? Yeah, I love That's No Country. Okay, for Old good. Men. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. No Country. I love um, what's the uh, a serious man? A serious man? Yeah, because yeah, that's uh, Jewish. That yeah, yeah. Anything Jewy related, I'm kind of into. <laughs> so we'll have Jew-y you on season related. two as a guest star. I'll be, yeah, I'll be the the, um, the Jewish voice in the room. Yes. <laughs> Oy vey. <laughs> I'm a quarter Jewish, by the way. Oh, you just found that out, right? I did. Just That's exciting. Did you do like an ancestry test? Twenty three and Me. My my mom did. Because my mom wanted to know what uh, my mom's gonna be pissed that I'm saying this, but she wanted to find out like what area of Greece, like because her last name's Poplis, what area of Greek she's from, and she finds out that she is fifty percent Jewish because her dad is Jewish. Wow, so all of isn't us that are, crazy? So all of us, and then she like redid another test, and same results. Come Did you get back a bar mitzvah after that? No, I should get one though. Right? Well, two of your best friends are Jewish, I believe. <laughs> all of my friends. Are Jewish. Did you immediately <laughs> yeah. call them and be like, it's first thing my I did. brothers? Yeah, <laughs> the very, we are the chosen one. My friend Samir, it's the first <laughs> yeah. thing I did. We were just talking about it over the weekend. I'm like, you're gonna have to sit down. I'm Jewish now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. Wait, what that that idea of like your whole life storyline being completely upended when you're like the age of 30. Like I've been telling myself the story of who I am. Yeah. It's crazy. And it just being actually quite different. Yeah. It's wild. Would you guys do those ancestry tests to find out your background? Yeah. Well, I I could afford it. Yeah. They're like $200, (laughs) man. I am broke, guys. (laughs) I I brought you all here for a reason. It starts into a Ponzi scheme. If you all invest $500 each. No, but it's 200 bucks, right? (laughs) A Ponzi scheme? It's whatever you say. No, no, no. No, man, those reversals. The 23 and me. Uh, I don't know. I've never looked into it. You know what's funny? Actually, my dad just did one recently. And he came home and he was like, guys, I'm so disappointed in my, my ancestry. He's like, I'm just 100% Askenagi Jew. It sucks. <laughs> he was like, I was hoping for a little Oriental. I was hoping for a That's little bit. That's such a self-hating Jew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, he, but, yeah. He was just like, I was hoping for just like something interesting in there. But it's like 97% Eastern European, basically. What's the best political movie you've ever seen? Ooh, I like. Uh, what's Define the political movie. Uh, like the get off my March. plane. Oh, <laughs> that's not a political movie. Air Force <laughs> He's a president. I guess yeah, it's political. What's uh, more political than that? Uh, all the president's president. men, probably. That's a classic. You know, yeah. I like a, a political movie. Wake the dog. There you go. Yeah. That's kind of a, a high end movie. Right? I think election might actually be because that's that's high sort school of school politics. Well, but it sort of speaks to the idea of of politics in general and how elections work and how like uh, even on this macro level, how ridiculous the whole. I think elections one of the greatest movies of all time. I like. I I know people didn't love it, but that uh, George. Clooney, Ryan Gosling movie from a couple of yeah, years. Ides of March. Oh, oh Ides of March. Right. Yeah. yeah. Here's that. Yeah, I like that movie. But I there's, I love political movie. movies actually. Political thrillers. Yeah, political thrillers. And I was just trying to segue back to the pedestal. Sure. Yeah, we, good we, job. Wanna, should we should we be saying what movies we did in this? In the, these That's first a good 10 tease. Episodes? Let's yeah. do it. So the first one we did was Star Trek Four. Yep. The Voyage Home. Mm-hmm. Dumb and Dumber. Blur Witch Project. See if I can do this off the top of my head. Number four was Goldfinger. James Bond. Mm-hmm. From like 1964. Goldfinger. 
That's all I kept doing that whole week. <laughs> I know you did. Uh, and then we did Space Jam. Space. Which led to a very uh, heated debate about whether very. or not uh, Ray Allen is a good actor. Oh, yeah. Did I, this pop up in other conversations? Yeah, I was I asked feel about he's it. a good actor. I think he's good. Shane thinks that he's stiff is, as a boy. He's face. one ridiculous uh, monotone note he has. Mm. That's it. Plays it well. No facial for me. expression. Yeah. Anyone can do that. Yeah. Listen to that episode, though, if you want to hear me and Shane get into it about Ray Allen. Uh, we did Coming to America. Uh, yeah. We did Full Metal Jacket. We did uh, airplane. The last one. The last one is Jaws, but yeah. it feels like I'm missing one. Garden State. Garden State. Mm. Oh, can't forget Garden State. Did you like Garden State when it came? I out love Garden State. That soundtrack I love too. Mm-hmm. So did we. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the episode. Yeah. Okay. Good. When that when Garden State first came out, I've said this, but I'll say it again. That it really it felt like it was like an explosion in my life. Yeah. Like, I felt like that's it. There's all all the first indie blockbuster. Yeah. This blew, movie speaks to me. It blew my mind. Like I can't believe a movie like this exists. What was the bigger revelation for you? Seeing Garden State for the first time or learning you're Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Jewish one blew my mind. Yeah. 1A, 1B. There you go. <laughs> all right. Let's get to Stephen Page. It's been... Yes, let's get to Mr. Stephen Page. Uh, We've talked on this podcast before about how uh, you know much we love the Bare Naked Ladies, huge part of our our sort of youth and growing up, and how much those songs resonated. Of course, Stephen uh, left the Bare Naked Ladies about a decade ago. Um, We get into uh, a lot of that in the conversation. Here's my question: You've interviewed Ed Robertson, and you've interviewed Stephen Page. Just from those brief interactions, do you have any sense of like why these two guys just can't get along? That's a good question. No, because because here's the thing is they're both incredibly nice and smart and like engaging and charismatic. But I think that they probably both have very like strong views of what they want to do and how they want to proceed. And they're just slightly different enough where like I think Ed you know, is a little bit of like, um, he's a bit of an everyman and a people pleaser. And I think Steven has that too, but I think Steven also falls a little bit more on like the defiant side of creative and celebrity. And we talk about that in the interview. Interesting. And maybe that's sort of a little bit of, of, of the divide there. Also, Jewish. <laughs> that's right. Oh. We, and you know what? This is actually very thematic because that comes up right yeah. off the top of the interview, which you prepped. In I questions. didn't know he was Jewish all these years, and then I was doing some research for the interview. We're everywhere. Yeah. Well, and uh, <laughs> we're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, my conversation with Stephen Page, his album is called Heal Thyself Part Two. Uh, it's out. I listen to a lot of it leading up to the to the record. We talk about a bunch of the songs, and we talk about, like I said, just a long career and um, sort of how he views uh, the legacy with Bare Naked Ladies, and you know that relationship, uh, and sort of how he perceives what he owes to the fans or what he doesn't. And honestly, like I. I kind of geeked out and at the end like I even was like man like I love your music and you know whenever you talk to these people that you sort of grew up listening to it really sort of resonates so and the songs hold up speaking of does it hold up or does it not those, those on the pedestal yeah, Bare Naked Ladies yeah. remain on the pedestal mm-hmm. for our listeners if you're just tuning in because maybe you're a big Stephen Page fan or a Bare Naked Ladies fan we have over a hundred episodes we talk to musicians directors actors all sorts of people you can find us everywhere podcasts are found iTunes SoundCloud Spotify YouTube if you want to listen at your desk. And now, for the first time ever, we're pleased. We are pleased. Pleased. <laughs> pleased, ladies and gentlemen. We are pleased uh, to let you know that you can find The Pedestal all the places you find your podcast, specifically where you find our podcast. Check it out. It's myself, Shane Cunningham, and of course, Mensa member Jonathan Popolis. <laughs> Talking about 10 different movies, 10 episodes, binge it over the holidays, binge it this weekend. We don't care. We just hope you listen to it and we hope that you like hanging out with us while we talk about movies because we certainly love movies and uh, it was a labor of love to do it. So, guys, I think it's that time. Want to get to Stephen Page? Let's get to it. 
You know, it's, well, we're rolling right now. If you didn't That's know, fine. I think you're. Rolling. I figured it out. Yeah. Um, are you a big record head? I was actually yeah. watching a couple. I guess around the Junos when uh, you were doing the uh, the induction and the reunion show. Uh-huh. Uh, you did a like I think it was a YouTube show where you were listening to old vinyls and you were sort of describing exactly how stuff was recorded and going into the songs. Uh, one of them was Jane, and you were talking about how Jane and St. Clair was the street. So mm-hmm. I never knew that. Yeah. Had, had you talked about that before? You yeah, like, I think so. Oh man. Anyway, it was uh, it was. Nice to listen to you sort of talk about it and see the sort of the appreciation. Are you one of those people that has like a house full of records? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love records. I mean, I don't care what format they're on, whether it's a, whether it's vinyl or or cassette or CD or on my computer. But but I love music and I love to. But I, I do actually like having the package of a vinyl record and the experience of listening to it as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to start with this new record because actually when my producer and I were talking about. Uh, how we're going to be talking to you today we're talking about the song white noise and you mentioned in the song you know that you're jewish and we were just like that never even really occurred to us like, you just never even think about it right but i guess my question would be like did you grow up in like a, a religious household was that like sort of a big part of your identity growing up well it was kind of uh, yes i mean it was a big part of my identity we, we were um like we weren't orthodox but we went to synagogue regularly sure. i went i went to Hebrew school and had a bar mitzvah and all that kind of stuff and went to Israel as a teenager. But um, I grew up in a school where I was like the only Jewish kid I knew. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Scarborough, which was pretty white bread back then. Very kind of Wayne's World, um, (laughs) white bread, Scarborough. And uh, so for me at the time as a kid, having to take the bus an hour and a half twice a week to go to Hebrew school felt like this... um, well, to mix metaphors across, I had to bear, <laughs> as another Jew once had to do, you know, and not to compare. I mean, right, my yeah. pain is much greater than well, the, the suffering is a little less. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I you know I didn't have a certain amount of suffering being a Jew in Scarborough. It's kind of like, you know, that's how I felt at the time. Of like, course, it was, it was fun. Like I felt like I'm a weirdo, and I, so I kind of had to like stick to my identity that way. You felt other, so you yeah. you really sort of leaned in, yeah, as I opposed so. to sort of trying to. Assimilate or That's whatever. Right. Yeah. It's funny how you can go both ways with those things and yeah. how children sort of And as a kid too, you can be kind of like you can it can be a little embarrassing. You know, just kind sure. of you know, tone it down, kid. <laughs> you know. It's okay. You don't think you can kind of make a big deal of your matzah on on Passover around us. <laughs> What'd your parents do? My parents both teachers. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, musicians? Um, my my mother was not a musician but a, but a huge music fan and uh um I, uh, like even in the '60s, went to um, Oscar Peterson had a school of music of jazz appreciation uh. in Ro- in Rosedale. So it was like Oscar Peterson ran it with all these great musicians like Ed Bickert and Ray Brown and stuff, like teaching the classes. Cool. Um, my dad was a drummer and uh, you know played in jazz bands and wedding bands and all kinds of stuff like that. So he gigged. Yep, he gigged. That's cool. You know, less and less as I got older, um, and then. When I uh, started the band, B&L, back in 88, we were doing that for a few years, and then um, we made the Yellow Tape, um, which was you know our big indie yeah, man, that breakthrough was the cassette thing. thing. And what was starting to happen was we'd made that as a, as a, a demo to take to South by Southwest. Because we had to try and get a record deal, so right? Exactly. Exactly. So we thought we had a like a, a, a tape that we'd made before that on an eight track in in or a, a four track, uh, like one of those that. like Tascam yeah. four track things. Exactly. Oh, I, I had one of those, and uh, Ed had one. So we made one uh, a tape of us in 
like some of it was recorded in my parents' basement and some was in his parents' basement, and we were selling that, but the duplication place that we had it had it um, duplicated at had, had like sped it up, so it sounded like chipmunks kind of, but we were selling that anyways, <laughs> and uh, we thought, okay, we go, before we go to South by Southwest, we should do a real demo, so we got one night at a studio. I bet you it cost a fortune back then, too. Well, yeah, so what, we, what you'd do is, like, so we went to Wellesley Sound, and you'd get an a night block, like from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, was the cheapest. Because no one else wanted to use the studio That's at that right. time. So that yeah. was the only time you could get it for, for cheap-ish. And then you have to pay for a reel of tape, too, um, which was the only reason why we had the Public Enemy cover at the end. Oh. Um, because we had like a minute and a half of left of tape, and you'd want to waste it. <laughs> so we yeah. just did that until the tape ran out. Yeah. Um, so we had this tape for South of Southwest, which we didn't actually, weren't officially part of, like, they would have Canadian showcase, of course. Or but you were just going down rogue and handing. Stuff well, we out. yeah we uh, we applied for the Canadian showcase, and like everything at that time, we got turned down. They're always like, yeah, it's a joke band, you know, this is not a real band. We don't want to be associated with them. Um, but we went down anyways. We said, okay, we'll see you. And we we just decided we'd set up out front of the Canadian showcase and busk, which is what we would do. Just whenever we couldn't get into something, we'd just stand out front and play. Yeah. And, uh, luckily for us, one of the bands on that bill couldn't get across the border. So they ran out and like, can you come and do a set? So we did end up doing like two sets that night anyways, but came back. We didn't get a record deal from that, but we had a great, <laughs> good experience. Saw lots of great bands and met people. And, uh, came back up to Toronto, had some tapes left over and started selling them off the stage and got sort of getting calls from Sam the Record Man and HMV and places like asking for the tape. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have any uh, money to pay for, for the amount of tapes that they wanted. So my dad said, well, I'll partner with you. I'll set this up and I'll do the distribution for you. So we ended up starting an indie distributor. A record based, label. And yeah, just a record label. And he ran that for you know, he he had stopped teaching by that point and ran it for like six years or something after. Wow, that. yeah. I mean, and like that tape did really well, so I'm sure he like did he make his money back on all the things set up. Well, yes, I think he I think he made his money back on that, but I think then he uh, he just started doing doing it for more and more bands, did it for lowest of the low, and oh, uh, got you. So then he sort of expanded. Yeah, He's like, became, yeah I'm doing this now exactly. This is, yeah. and became kind of a the indie distributor for a lot of different. Uh, artists and where they actually had you know full warehouse space and everything else wow um you know obviously uh this record's coming out in a couple days mm -hmm. and uh you continue to tour and i'm interested in sort of your songwriting process uh like what's your routine like are you sort of like workmanlike meaning like i wake up in the morning put my pants on i write a song or is it sort of therapeutic in the sense that it's like i need to get this off my chest how do you approach it it's it's kind of neither i feel like it should be the it should be the former mm -hmm. you, know, the, you know the uh paint when the light is good kind of idea and um I'm too much of a procrastinator for that, and my life is kind of too uh, unpredictable, too. It's like I'm on the road a lot, and I've always had these great fantasies of being able to write on the road, which I've never done because the day is so full. Sure. Um, and I put so much of my energy into the show. Um, I'm not like where I don't know where the writing time goes. Although touring with Craig Northy, I've actually done more writing on the road than I had ever done before. Um, and then when I get home, I kind of want to do home stuff. And then I go, oh, I guess I gotta go write a song. And sometimes songs just come. Like, that's the, my favorite songs, the ones that just kind of come and you have to just get it out of you. Um, 
they come quickly. The ones you have to labor over yeah. sometimes stick with you for years until you kind of figure out what that song actually is. Um, and they, uh, they, you know, you're glad they're out. But, uh, <laughs> they but were they, laborious. They were laborious. Yeah, exactly. you, never feel, you never feel like they've quite been quite as clean. Sure, it doesn't have probably the same feeling as the they're ones. Kinda they're kind of like just... taking different kinds of dumps. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it can be satisfying. The time after you barely have to dump. wipe is yeah. like the greatest song ever. That's true. That is true. The less work, sort of the more the, the, the more satisfying yeah. in some ways. Um, where you, it's, it's like a colonic. You think oh, it's probably good for me. I got it out there, but this uh, didn't I did, feel good. I didn't enjoy the process. No. Um, where do you stand on this new record? Uh, for me, just when I was going through all the tracks, really stood out. I, I, I mean, it feels very of this time. Mm-hmm. Um, are you somebody that sort of has been watching sort of what's going on in the world? And I mean, White Noise gets at this obviously, sure. and. You feel, I, I kind of need to write about this stuff because this is, you know, I'm staying up at night and I'm thinking about these things. I'm watching the news. I'm consuming it. Uh, or, or do you feel like you're kind of, like, I guess what I'm getting at is, is it personal to write these things or are you sort of more observational? No, it's personal. Yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, there there are elements of being an observer on this record. Um, but I think, especially as you start talking about political stuff, if you sure. don't, if you don't make it personal, it, it feels like finger wagging again and I I don't have a lot of patience for that um and I don't I don't see a lot of value in it at least in 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 my experience in music it's it when the political and personal are the same um that's far more interesting to me and I think that connects with far more people um so a song like where do you stand I actually wrote it for a musical that I've written with Daniel McIver the Canadian playwright um and that actually takes place in the 80s and that's where um it's uh during the aids crisis interesting um but i wrote it from the point of view of me now you know i was thinking about i watch fellow musicians say things like you know if you don't stand up for what you believe then uh, if you don't write about political stuff then you're then you're um then you're against us or you're you know yeah, you're, you're part, sitting you're it part out of the so actively hurting it yeah. that's right and i i had decided to sit it out on the um social media front because well first of all i mean i was always when i lived here in canada was always very politically active and you know that alienates some people but i don't care about that i don't i don't i don't mind having discourse but Social media isn't the place for discourse. It's just a place. I, my, my skin is too thin for the trolls, and sure. it's can't, it can't. It's not a place where I can have a discussion. And then I realized I'm not. I'm not here for the discussion. You know, I'm an artist. And my point, my my job is to write about what I'm trying to process. Um, what are my values? And the song "Where Do You Stand" is like wrestling with how much of yourself do you give away to people, um, and how much you've how much of a sellout are you if you keep it too close to your chest too if you hold back yeah if you don't if you don't draw a line and say this is where my values are um then are you just a phony yeah i wanted to ask about uh like obviously like there's a guy that wrote this sort of tune, Brian Wilson, which mm-hmm. is like this massive song. What do you think the qualities are that sets it apart? I mean, can you define what makes something sort of resonate so much with people and what's going to be a hit and what's, you know, just uh, another song? I'm bad at that. I think like with Brian Wilson, it's it's 
I think it's largely about nostalgia for people. Like You're right. The hook right away, the name of the song, you go, well, that's interesting. I'm gonna right. There's, there's, there's that. And then people just think about now when they hear it, they think about when they used to hear it before, like where, where, where they first heard the song or what, interesting. It, what it reminds them of in their own lives. Like that might be why it lives, but why do you think initially it was like, right? Well, my inspiration for the song musically was, um, I was thinking about a song like, um, home for a rest by spirit of the West. Yep. You know, it starts with the, with a slow verse, that then gets repeated at the end, up tempo. Yep. Um, and that it had, and so that was like what I was thinking of was ha- how to start a song that, that, that had this kind of ballad beginning, but had a raucous ending. But then it's got these like two different bridges in the middle, and that's part of it is just like I didn't know what I was doing, which is I love about the song that it has this mm. sense of like I didn't know what you were supposed to do in a song. I didn't know where chords were supposed to go so i just i just wrote stuff that followed the melody yeah so that meant the melody was strong i guess and um the fact that people didn't necessarily know what the song was about Mm. um especially at that time i mean the other the other inspiration was the um the replacement song alex Alex chilton Mm. so they had the song about alex chilton and his music and i thought like what a cool thing to have one of your heroes as the title of the song and a way to introduce whether it's intentional or not it's a way it was a way for me to understand to to be introduced to alex chilton's music Mm. um and big star um and i had just really gotten into the lore and the music of the beach boys i always hated the beach boys growing up i always thought they were like lightweight I don't know, kind of just, it was nothing to me. Sure. All I knew was the, the kind of surf songs the and fun, 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 which I all, I love all that stuff now. Yeah. But at the time, it didn't have, it didn't resonate with me the way the Beatles did. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, that was kind of everything to me. Um, and the Beach Boys also, this is, you know, when I was first aware of them, was the mid mid 70s. So they were America's band. It was kind of, they, were, they had this, this rah rah Republican kind of vibe to them, like it just seemed like, <laughs> yeah, like part of the propaganda. Yeah, yeah and not sure. part of the subculture. Yeah, and which um, is how they were presenting. That's right. But when I was in university, I had a, a friend there who said, "No, no, no. Here, I'll make you a tape." Because that was the you know the golden age of the mixtape. I made him a mixtape of Leonard Cohen, and he made me a mixtape of. Um, Oh, well, uh, Velvet Underground and of uh, um, the Beach Boys, but also told me the whole story, and I and I started to really get into it. And so, writing this song, you know, I don't even know how conscious I was of the fact that I was writing about my own depression, mm. but I understood that at that point, people would talk about Brian Wilson spending all his time lying in bed. And people just used it as something. It was kind of like a punchline to a joke at the time. Yeah. It was less about mental illness or uh, substance abuse. It was more like, oh, this eccentric sort of... That's right. It adds to the lore, but not like, wow, this guy's really suffering. Right. It was more like he was a 60s uh, casualty. You got it. And that was kind of like, in the the 80s at least, that seemed like a funny thing. Quirky and funny thing. And 
And I tried to write something that had a little bit more, um, well, that, that connected to that and didn't make it seem as as um, uh, laughable or as weird. Um, although there's still that sense of humor. But the same thing happened with, with the Be My Yoko Ono song. It's kind of a, a dumb song, but in general, the point was to take the mythology of the 60s, that something was wacky and... Uh, and uh, well, it's difficult to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that like the whole sort of the, the way they were framed, John and Yoko, was in this sort of very like, oh, they're being weird and idiosyncratic, and their yeah. love is sort of like, are they just kind of is it a put on? What's up with them? That's right. And the song sort of made it into this very sweet sort of like, well, what if what's the other side, which is love and devotion, right? And, sort of, and yeah, wouldn't we all like to have a relationship like that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was I was lucky enough to be at uh, the rehearsal for I mean you guys did the like I alluded to off the top um, at the Junos this year yeah. when you guys got together I guess for like a, almost a decade it was since you guys performed together yeah. so I was in the rehearsal luckily and then I got to see the the, the main show was that I mean I, I mean I've absolutely sort of not uh, been around friends I've grown up with and I've gone back and hung out and you're always kind of like oh this is going to be interesting are we going to fall into the old rhythms was it a nerve wracking experience or were you kind of like ah oh, this will be a laugh let's do it Where, how did you frame it in your mind going into it um, I knew that whatever energy I was going to bring into it was going to be positive that was my mission and that's kind of where I'm at if it had been you know or five years previous it wouldn't have been like that like it didn't end on a the band my time at the band didn't end on a great note um, as as much as you try to be civil and amicable, it just gets it just gets weird. And it you know it's the same thing. Like I've been through a divorce, and you try and make it as as amicable and as quick and as easy as possible, and it just gets weird. And it takes time for things to get better. And part of me went, you know, look if I could ha- have three bar mitzvahs with my ex wife, yeah, um, for the sake of my my kids and have them go off well and be a grown up enough to do that then this you know this band that i had fun with for 20 years should be easy but you know when you start a band when you're 18 um you basically grow up together um and that was the hardest thing for me in the early days of being solo was that i didn't know how to not be in the band right like that's all i knew how to do as an adult and all of a sudden I had to be my own person. Um, well, ten years later, I'd figured that part out. You'd learned that new skill set. You'd felt you'd felt comfortable with it now. Yep, I was comfortable with where where I'm at, what what I'm doing. Um, was proud of that and proud of what I did with the band. And I've really focused on all the good memories I have. And uh, so I walked into the room with that energy. And uh, I think they just didn't know what to expect. Um, did you sense like trepidation on their yeah. part? Interesting. Yeah, at first, and then it was just like, "Let's do this." We had some good laughs over a few things, and started singing. And you know, we um, we rehearsed right um, like the day before. Yep. you saw our rehearsal as well, and uh, and it was easy and it was fun. Yeah, well, I mean, it's always interesting because I think like whenever you're in such a sort of successful and big band, and then big bands break up fans always have trouble sort of understanding like oh you know why can't they just sort of work it out why can't they reconcile sure. what makes it so difficult for i mean here's the thing no if you never walked in the shoes you don't know no one knows the stress the yeah. pressures the sort of things that go on but why does it what makes it so difficult for i think like bands to reconcile and maybe go back is it just like you well, said i a, think it's like a divorce or it's like you know i i try to 
man, I try not to even respond anymore. People still are like, just, know. you know, just man up and go back or just man up and let them back in the band or whatever they always say, like, just get together and whatever the, the angle fans. is. Yeah. And it's like as if it, it's if it was something easy or something that we would even want, like the fact that maybe we don't want to play together doesn't seem to, to be an option for some fans like sure. do it for the fans like as if it was do it for the kids or something but um you know you can't there are so few people who can go back to a, a previous relationship imagine you know being in a work situation of any sort that turned bad sure and then people keep saying go back to work for that person that you didn't work you know that ended badly with and, People are going to try to avoid that as much as they can, especially if they feel like they've made some good career choices since then. Or on a personal level, like you know, you know, most people don't go back to their ex-spouses, especially sure. after after a breakup. You'll learn to to move on and hopefully learn to be civil with each other if you, if you need to be. Um, so the fact that we actually did get to play together again was a big, you know, was a, a gift to us and, and hopefully to the fans, too. Yeah, it's interesting fans tend not to, I find this with athletes and musicians, is they don't realize that it is a place of work. And they can never sort of make the connection where it's like you said, if I left, if, if for whatever reason things didn't work out at my job and I didn't want to go back, and someone's like, I'll just go back after 10, it'll be fine. Yeah. Or, you know, everybody will want to do this together, they'll all work together. And it's just like, they don't frame it that way because music is such a fun pursuit and it seems that's almost right. like a hobby. They don't see it as a, as a business or a career or whatever, a workplace. And that's that, that's... I mean, I see that on on so many levels, and I've written, on, especially in the last two records, a lot about that. The idea of, you know, making art as a, as a vocation, oh. as, a, as a job. Um, it's a difficult thing to negotiate for artists. That's right. And how do you, so how do you yourself, when you have people treating you both as a uh, provider of a commodity, so it's a business, exp- uh, you have this business relationship with your fan base, the fans who, who demand to be treated like customers um, on one point. You know, I, your album was too long, it was too short, it was too much treble, it was too much bass, like whatever, quality sure. control issues, like it's crazy stuff like that. So they, they, they people want a relationship that's a business relationship, and then they want a relationship that is somehow... Uh, a spiritual relationship visceral yeah that's right and if you don't sing what they want to believe if if you don't keep the narrative going of your friendship with the other guys in your former band or your political stance or whatever else then you get cut off from people that's okay i don't mind having those lines drawn i i want to be clear about who i am but i also want to be able to be allowed to change but i don't want to be made to feel bad about my choice of career like as if it's not a real job i I, um do you find yourself feeling bad yeah like i i've finally gotten to a point where i'm able to uh forgive myself for enjoying my job interesting you know because uh because it's you know now i'm finally like feeling like yeah, it's hard work, but I don't have to justify that to anybody. In fact, I wish it was a lot less hard work than it is. Sure. Um, I love doing the shows. I love having written songs. I don't love writing songs. It's painful. <laughs> but now I that love, you got them. But I love having written them. <laughs> um, and I like having them in my catalog. And I like being able to go to shows. I don't like the, all the travel and all the time away from home. And um, 
you know, I th it's a heartbreaking thing to do too. Like when it doesn't, even creatively, you know, you work on something and you listen back and go, "That was not what I was trying to do." And you got to scrap stuff. It's, it takes a lot out of your, takes a lot of energy, um, and it takes its toll on your family, on your, on your own self. Um, so to question whether, you know, like as if it was somehow not a real job. And I think professional athletes are the only, just about the only other people who get that, I guess actors sometimes too. Sure. But like, why is it that in the arts, um, that we get the sense that from our audience, like that we don't work hard enough. We don't like, I don't, I don't think there's a sense of be grateful in a weird way. Yeah. And then like, you're not living up to my perception of how you should be. And that's it's right. like, well, at the end of the day, I'm still just a person. Like, you're a person to your kids and your family, yeah. and it's like, yeah, that's right. But like, you know, I'm I'm grateful for the life that I've had. Yeah, you know, and, and that's but but yeah, you have to like thank the fans at every turn, which is a weird thing. Like, sure, does Tim Cook have to thank the fans at every turn? You know, we we're announcing the the Apple Watch Four. Thanks everybody for uh, sticking with us through <laughs> through iterations one, two, and three. Yeah, there's a lot of bugs in those early ones, yeah. but we're here now. And yeah, and uh, you know, and yeah, even though he's not with us anymore, I want you to know I still think of Steve Jobs every day. <laughs> I miss him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, it's not it's not the same kind of world. To that point, else. though, do you you know you talk about being in a band since you're 18 with these guys? Do you ever miss the friendship sort of? Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. There's lots of stuff that I miss. There's lots of stuff that, but miss is I'm nostalgic for in a sense. Like I always when I think of something we laughed our heads off about or something that was on that happened on stage or an improv we did one night or yeah. whatever um i just enjoy telling the stories to my friends like i'll be like oh god there's this thing we did and you watch people's faces glaze over because it's not half as funny to them as it is to me <laughs> yeah sure and then then you go okay that's just a real story about me and my friends yeah i like that stuff so when i got to see the guys at the junos that was the nicest thing was to be able to to just kind of see where everybody's at now i mean it didn't get enough time to really dig deep but that's okay i didn't need to i wanted to see see what the kids looked like and yeah you know, sure. now they're grown up and that kind of thing yeah um this is actually just a personal question because the song it's all been done uh i th obviously it was a big hit and i always love when it gets a third verse like and, and you can speak to this because i have the writer sitting right here and you know when you go through the the sort of three verses you're talking about this person that you've had this relationship with obviously through the years mm -hmm. metaphorically and at the end uh, in the third verse when you get to the part about seeing them on the prices right and you don't know if you'll laugh or you smile as they run down the aisle mm -hmm. that, that's a double illusion right to the idea of maybe seeing this person you used to be with get married or is it literally just prices right See, I hate answering this you don't, question. You don't have to answer it. No, I, but I was like, I don't want to ruin it for you. I was thinking about it this morning. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to ask it because I, I, when I listen to that song, I, I, that, I, that line speaks to me, man. I, well, I, when I wrote it, I was only thinking about The Price is Right. There you go. But I have thought about it since. And it's funny how songs like that change. Like songs, when you, when you sing them, um, sometimes they don't reveal themselves to you until later yeah. as the writer. Um, like I was saying about Brian Wilson, where I, even I wasn't completely... Sh I don't think I hadn't fully understood that it was really a song about my own mental You're health. talking about yourself. And, uh, and that it was about depression, because I don't think I had ever... At that point in my life, I don't think I had identified that that's what I had struggled with. Um, I was only... Um, writing about the symptoms, not yeah. knowing what the what the condition was. Um, 
but like even on this new record there's a song um looking for the light where you know i was writing it with craig northy and we were talking about um writing a song that had like a spiritual kind of vibe like a sense you know listening to 60s and 70s r&b music and thinking about this connection to to spirituality in those songs and how i feel like so much of that is such like i can't write songs like that i'm too uh pragmatic and i'm too um analytical and too atheistic interesting <laughs> and so i just you know how can i love that music and how can it make how can it move me and touch me um when i'm uh, when i'm so quick to write off religiosity anywhere else and you know in a song like gravity which makes fun of religion over science and those kinds of things um so how do i how can i get some of that how can i express some of that without betraying myself without singing something that i don't believe sure um so that was the, that was the mission of looking for the light was how to write a song about that felt like it was about being spiritual in a dark time um without maybe personally being very spiritual right or yeah without without having to rely on god and jesus or the construct of religion that's maybe? right yeah okay. um in the way that that those songs that i admire are built on they're built on that foundation and i don't i don't have that foundation as a human it's not in me um but it wasn't until quite recently as i've been rehearsing the song I'm realizing, like, this feels like a song to my kids, ah. um, which all of a sudden felt very emotional to me because I hadn't thought of that when I was writing it. But now I won't stop thinking of it while I'm singing it. And that's the amazing thing about songs re-informing themselves as they grow. Well, we're getting to wrap it up. I could talk to you forever, man, but right. obviously you've got to go. But thank you for your time. My pleasure. And I just want the song Break Your Heart. I, my brother made me put this in here. He, he said he wanted to know the whole backstory because me and my friends, we get we've been, we got drunk and we take our shirts off. And many guys have been screaming the lyrics to that song at times <laughs> about breaking your heart. So uh, anyway, awesome. you, you brought us a lot of good well, time. Thank my you friends, very much. So thank you so much. Welcome to the desserts, where our pop culture aficionado comes on. His name's Shane Cunningham. It's like I haven't been doing this for a hundred. I'm all over the place today. Uh, but it's not just Shane because uh, if you were listening off the top, our friend and pedestal, our friend, there it is, our friend and pedestal co-host Jonathan Pablos has decided to hang around for the dessert. All Mensa, all the time. It's me. Yep. And Jewish, quarter yeah, Jewish. All Mensa, Jewish. one quarter Jewish, one quarter Jewish. Shaney, what do you got for us, buddy? Well, I was. This one's. A strange one, uh, because we're going to be throwing to an interview that mm. I did. I talked to a hero of mine, mm. and uh, it's from a, he created a video game called Toe Jam and Earl. Okay. Oh. That was a very, very popular video game. I'm not a video game guy, but I remember that video well, game. Well, I don't know it at all. The good thing about the creator of this, his name's Greg Johnson, he created this game for people who don't like video games, who aren't video game people, and that's his whole thing. And I'm technically not a video game person, but the ones I love, I get very obsessive about and I especially love the games from the 80s and early 90s uh, Sega Genesis games especially so you're a Genesis guy because if you like Toe Jam and absolutely yeah. you like Sonic the Hedgehog I hated Sonic the Hedgehog Interesting. I loved Mario but when it came to Sega I love their version of NBA Jam better than Super Nintendo's version of NBA uh -huh. Jam 
and uh, Toe Jam Earl obviously became my favorite game. So a couple of years ago when I was courting my wife, I I bought Sounds a so proper. I bought uh when I was fucking the shit out of her. <laughs> Am I right, boys? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, didn't you borrow the nuts house on, on your first date with Alex, your now wife? I did. Yeah. Because I wanted to impress her with uh, like, I was like, look house. at my rich friends. <laughs> <laughs> this is the life for you. I didn't at the time. I didn't know she had this, this massive is the life house for you. Well, it was where yeah. we, slagged, we always slagged the nut on the pot. It might be nice just to give him a little prop. Up nice there. house. Thanks, nut. Anyway, I bought the Sega Genesis and I was like, hey, this is a favorite game growing up. I'm, I wonder if you want to try it out. <laughs> This is all at the nuts house? <laughs> what a Lothario. <laughs> Don Juan over here. <laughs> Milady, would you like to play some, some toe jam and Earl? And Earl? <laughs> I caught you. My friend is a giant house. I have a refurbished Sega. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> refurbished. But anyway, she started playing and we got re-addicted well i got re-addicted she became addicted to toe jam and earl and then when i started getting more experimental with the desserts i was like geez i can really use this platform to kind of contact people and say i'm from the canadian mtv could i interview you for this very respected podcast we've had noel gallagher all these people on it etc i send him the noel gallagher interview oh and I'm like, I'm not that guy, but I am. I am. I know, that guy you're not Noel. Uh, but I am you're on Noel. <laughs> I'm not him. I'm not him, but you're not Noel. So let's make it work. <laughs> but, but I'm like, you know, I am on this respective podcast. Anyway, the guy agrees. It's like a 45 minute interview. And again, one of the good parts about being on the dessert is that it's at the very end. And if you don't want to listen. You just shut it off. It's not a, It's not that big of a hassle. So this might be our longest episode yet, mm. but this is fair warning that this is for video game nerds. And maybe if you're not a nerd, it's for people who love Toe Jam from the 90s because a new game is coming out. This has been 25 years in the making. Wow. It's called Toe Jam and Earl Back in the Groove. It's coming out on PS4, PC, and Nintendo Switch. And I have been... <laughs> Max is letting out the biggest... Yes. <laughs> Max is asleep on the floor we right now. We look over his... He's gone from the chair and the microphone just sitting on the chair. <laughs> but... <laughs> I can't tell you how excited I was for this release. And Greg Johnson, the creator of the game, he promised me that it would be out this November. So I've been counting down the days. It's been delayed to 2019 oh. after it already was delayed in 2017. You got to get Mr. Johnson to send you some uh, some goods. He did. What? Ooh. You played it? Here's a, He sent me this special um, card. It's called a... Uh, fuck, I forget what it's called, but it has a special code and it gives you access to... The game. Like the demo okay. of yeah. it? Yeah. Oh. But I remember. On PC, like a dongle? Yes. Kind of. It's on PC. And he yeah. sent me a t shirt. So Greg, like, was really into how into the game I was. And, like, I really nerd out, as you'll listen to if anyone awesome. does proceed with this. I guess I'll throw to this interview and people can uh, give it a whirl. Yeah. And no pressure to listen, folks. I know this is very unorthodox. Old school gaming stuff is amazing. I listen to every. Old school gaming podcast, like retro. It's unorthodox, but too, not yeah. as unorthodox as John. It's true because that's a Jewish orthodox. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a quarter orthodox. Oh my bad. <laughs> but okay, throw to the interview and thank you very much for uh, appearing on this episode, John Poplis, Mensa member six foot five. Gem and Earl coming at you. I'm excited for this interview. All right, yeah, man. All right, I gotta go. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that me too for Max. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,
Hello, this is Greg. Hi, this is uh, Shane Cunningham from Michael Much Podcast. Hi, Shane. Nice to meet you. Man, I can't believe I'm actually uh, talking to the creator of my favorite game right now. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> How did your career in gaming even begin? Like everyone as a kid says, I want to design video games, but obviously it takes a, <laughs> a special aptitude. When did you realize you had what it takes? That's funny. I didn't say I wanted to do video games because n- nobody said that because they didn't exist yet. <laughs> when, when, I was, when I was a kid, even when I started, you know, I'm a little older, I'm um, 58. And so... Um, oh, you do not look that old at all. Wow. Oh, um, thanks. That's nice of you to say that. Yeah, so I've been around, you know, when I started doing video games, uh, it was in right around 1981, maybe. You know, this was when I was still in college and my roommate brought home an Atari 600 and uh, it was the first time I had seen a, like a, a home, uh, console. You know, it was really the very, very early days. Before that, it was just like Pac-Man and Pong and Space Wars, you know, vector graphics games in bowling alleys and stuff like that. So it was totally new, totally uh, amazing and exciting and kind of mind-blowing at the time. I remember standing behind him going, oh my gosh, what is that? And I worked at Scripps Institute back in those days, you know, kind of getting myself prepared for that further education and in communication research. But then this video game thing happened and it was just so captivating and exciting. I thought I would take a year off before going to grad school and just try it. And get involved with this project that my roommate had started getting involved with called Starflight, one of Electronic Arts' first games. And then it, I took another year and another year, and, 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 and Starflight finally came out, and it was so exciting and fun. I thought, oh, maybe I'll do the sequel to that, and then I'll go back to grad school. And look, here it is 34 years later, and I'm still wondering if I'm going to go back to grad school, but <laughs> thinking, well, maybe I'll do one more game first. <laughs> How would you describe in your own words Toe Jam and Earl? Oh, well, um, I've described it in so many ways. Usually what I say is, you know, I start by saying it's a roguelike game because then people kind of get the gameplay in general, but instead of going down into a dungeon, you're going up levels and uh, it's very cooperative, very lighthearted, musical, and has the the theme of two aliens who crash landed on the planet. So there's a lot of satirical humor kind of built into it, but it's kind of subtle. You know, it's not trying to um, be heavy handed with its messaging. It's more just like there to have a good time. And if it makes you think a little bit about who you are and about this insane world we're in and about not taking life quite so seriously, then great. You know, but if it just makes you laugh and enjoy a little time with your friends or family, okay, cool too. <laughs> you know, it's one of those games you can tell it was designed with two player in mind. Whereas some games you feel like mm. it was a one player game and they just tacked on a two player element. I feel like this is almost the opposite. Would I be right in assuming that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was very consciously made as a two player game. Now, in fact, for this new one, we've put a lot of energy into expanding that into making it into an exciting three- and four-player game experience as well. But yeah, like right from the beginning, uh, Mark Borsanger, who's the fellow I made the original games with and to this day just 
uh, best of friends. He and I wanted to make a game. To be quite honest, it wasn't even made as a game for two players for other people. It was made for me and Mark. We we wanted to make a game that we could enjoy playing together and uh, enjoy the whole process of making. And then that just kind of translated into a game that was fun for other people. You said the guy's name, he, it was Mark. Oh, yeah, Mark Vorsanger. If this was like a Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak situation, would you be the Steve Jobs or the Steve Wozniak? Or are you both? <laughs> well, um, I, I, I think neither, because um, both Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are a lot um, smarter and more technical than I am. I did the design and the artwork, and Mark did all of the engineering and uh, some pretty phenomenal engineering, too, back in those days. Yeah. You know, that Sega told us we couldn't do the split screen, and he was like, oh, yeah, I bet we can. And then, like, within a month, he had it up and running. And uh, It's one of the smoothest was... two-player transitions ever. It'll go to a full screen when the two players mm-hmm. are in the same area together, and then when you venture off a certain distance, it splits into this seamless split screen. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I always thought I'd see more people copying that after we did it because it was very effective. I haven't seen that very much. It still, to this day, kind of remains something fairly unique to Toe Jam and Earl. And then we took that in this new game, and we actually put a lot of work into making the screen split dynamically with three and four players. So the screen is split into four spots now? Yeah, it does. Uh huh. But we try to make it dynamic so that... Um, if two or three of the players happen to be together, the screen combines so that you see yourself in one section of the screen. If it's always split, like, you know, some four-player games, like some Nintendo games, will keep the screen always split into four quadrants. You don't get quite as strong of a feeling of playing together. There's just this kind of visceral feeling when you actually see yourself on the same I was just wondering, you and Mark are still close friends. You don't hear of him being involved anymore. Did he just, after he kind of engineered the first game, did he just want to be bought out and not continue making sequels and trilogies and uh, with the Toe Jam series? Oh, no, no, not at all. He, he actually left the game industry to go on to do other stuff. Um, he just had other interests, you know. He's a very atypical engineer because he's more of a people person than a, a code machine person. Right. So that was always, um, even when we were working on the project, a little bit of a struggle for him because he felt kind of an internal calling to be working with people more than just sitting at his computer. So he's he's gone on to be like a, a personal counselor and you know, helps people solve their life problems. So he has no involvement in the new game? Um, just kind of on the sidelines. You know, we get together for dinner, and I fill him in on what's happening, and he checks out where we're at and kind of gives me encouragement and support. But he's given me a lot of faith to take it and basically go with it. So a game like this, working out the glitches, has to be the most annoying thing in the world. Like, it has to be never-ending. Yeah, well, especially for a game like this. Just imagine, right? Any game is hard, and I've done so many over the years, and any developer will tell you that it's hard just to predict. It's hard to stay on schedule. Um, there's always technical issues. But when you have a game where everything is random, so it's different every time, both the terrain and all of the dis- distribution of all of the elements are completely random in this game. And then you have all these different modes, because we've got like 
fixed mode, tutorial mode, random mode, hard mode. We've got all the different difficulty levels for any individual player. In fact, you can play normal mode or easy farty mode or uh, <laughs> toddler mode. And then you've got multiple players so that, you know, you've got all these different things happening mm. all the time with all these combinations. And then you add network play on top of that. And then you add consoles on top of that. It's, it's just in, <laughs> insane. It's almost infinite. So, you know, yeah, it is. So it's been a real challenge debugging this thing and getting it a clean and solid. And our fans have been super patient. And, um, you know, it's a little hard for them, to, of course, to have a view into that and to understand why is it taking so long. But um, once you step into that world and you see what's involved, you go, oh, my gosh, how is this even possible? Because <laughs> this know? game was supposed to be released 2017, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. Yeah, we ran the Kickstarter originally in March 2015. Yeah, you know, the, the, I'd say the networking just alone added at least a year to the project. We vastly underestimated the amount of work and time that was mm -hmm. going to be. Um, I think it will pay off, you know. The real magic for this game, like you already said, is the multiplayer aspect of it. And because it was so... People have such powerful memories about it from years gone by. Now there's a lot of people who have gone their separate ways who still want to play together and reconnect. So having that online ability is going to be important, I think, for people who've, you know, moved apart to still play so, but it's been hard. <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of work. Oh well, yeah. I've been one of those fans just waiting. Like last year, I was like, "It's going to come out around Christmas time." I was. My wife and I are obsessed with this game. We play it. We have a big projector in our bedroom. We play it now. We have a child actually, so uh, I was <laughs> okay. like, "So I'm going to have to buy a new console." What would you recommend? Like, should I buy the Nintendo Switch? Hmm. Um, yeah. You know. Um, well, it's going to be on the Switch and the. Um, PS4 and the Xbox One. Um, what would be closest to the, my Sega in terms of what I'm used to? Because I, I play, I still play Toe Jam almost every day on Sega. Gosh, they're very similar in terms of the gameplay experience. I think actually, at least for right now, the the best gameplay experience is probably if you're looking for the absolute smoothest, fastest, best is probably on the PC because that's where we've put most of our effort at least mm -hmm. to date, and then we're porting it, and so. It's going to take us a little while to get um, the other ports probably quite up to that same right. uh, same level, all of them. Mm -hmm. I actually found a glitch on the original Toe Jam, and I was like, oh, I wonder if Greg knows that this one exists. Hmm. Did you know that if you're using Icarus wings and you're flying around and then you open the togetherness, what happens? Mm -hmm. Did you Have you mm -hmm. ever done that before? No, I don't. Well, I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay, so if you, have, if you have Icarus and then you open togetherness, you'll kind of start spiraling out of control and you'll start flying off a bunch of levels and you'll start swinging back and forth on the screen. No kidding. It's really huh, cool, no, actually. That's a new one to me. Oh, wow. Okay, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> how funny. All right. You did. Yeah, how about that? I'm going to have to try that. We've got it set up. Um, yeah, Matt set it up in our conference room with uh, the original game and a Genesis and a CR, even on a CRT <laughs> that we've got, old TV. I'll, I'll try that. And, and my wife wanted me to ask you, because we debate this, do Icarus wings make you go faster when, you, when the shadow is over a road, or do you go the same speed while you're flying? That's a really good question. 
dang if I know the answer to that. It's been too many years. Um, <laughs> I might have known that way back when. That's um, okay. I guess that wasn't a high enough priority item to stick in my brain all this time. I don't know. I'm I'm going to guess that it doesn't make you go faster, but that's so. that's just I'm taking a random shot. Really, and I, my my wife I, uh, is convinced that you can go faster in the cheese with spring shoes, but I think it's the same speed. I don't think it helps. Do you know that? Wait, in the cheese? What do you mean? Yeah, oh, I, you know that orange stuff. Is it that not cheese? What is that supposed to be on the ground? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's so funny. No, no, that's uh, that sand. It is sand. Oh, we like, always called it cheese. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. You know, it's is the Earth viewed through alien eyes? It could just as well be cheese. Why not? Do the spring shoes help you go through the sand? Um, like if you're just hopping without game. jumping. Yeah. Is is that true? Because I told my wife that's not true, but she's convinced she goes faster when she's just hopping along with spring shoes. Um, not actually using the spring jump, but just to when you're just hopping in the spring shoes. You know, it it may very well be I don't think you sunk into the sand when you had spring shoes on, so I think probably what your velocity is probably unchanged. So, it may be um she may be right and I'd guess that it is the case that crossing the sand on spring shoes mm-hmm. just means you won't slow down cuz sand did you it did sort of have this increasing effect on your velocity the longer you were in it it slowed you more so <laughs> probably yeah okay. it's a good strategy high five with your wife you don't play toe jam very often right. i take it like the original not the old one no. so much i mean I, you know i play the new one every every <laughs> every single day for the last three and a half years how do you find the balance cuz obviously in the new game toe jam and Earl, back in the groove i feel like n- mm-hmm. number 1 is the the template, pretty much. And you, you took some elements mm-hmm. from Planet on Funkatron, which was the second one. Mm-hmm. But it feels like the base yeah. is the the first one. Why do you think that one connected so much with people over the other two games of the Toe Jam series? And how did you find the balance to take from that first game and make it new at the same time? Well, um, it's funny. You know, a lot of people who played Game 2 first liked that game better. Usually what you see first is what you connect with most. Right. Um, still, because game one was game one, and the first, it sort of established its identity of Toe Jam and Earl in, in, out there in the you know, world's mind. <laughs> so when, we, when I wanted to kind of go back to the roots, to like the origin, that felt like the purest way to do it, you know, to go straight back to the beginning and the original uh, idea of the game. But like you said, there were still elements from Game 2 that I felt like worked really well and that people really liked. One of the ways I chose what to do, partly some of it was obvious, like the rhythm matching, you know, in Game 1 was sort of outside the game as the jam out. And it was kind of cute, but it was very um, uh, separate and very primitive. Um, so I wanted to do uh, take that from Game 2, from Panic on Funkatron and... We actually amped that up a little bit more, too. We made it multiplayer, so you can do that together now with people. And we also added this element where you can create your own rhythms in addition to matching the rhythms. And then it's kind of fun. Your friends get to match the rhythms that you make up. Um, so uh, there's that. And we took the hyperfunk zone. Um, that also was... Uh, 
was something actually a lot of the fans had said that they really loved and were hoping we they would see again, especially those people who were um, more partial to Game 2. Uh, that was one of the things they, they called out and asked for. And then things like, um, you know, in Game 2 we had the, oh gosh, we had the buttons and the meters coin meters and those chains that was yep. kind of fun and gave you so we added that um and uh and it looks like the element of sh- shaking things. out things to get gifts it looks like that element right but, yeah yeah and in fact even even right down to the bowling balls coming out and landing on your head that's there too mm-hmm. in this game is another example once you finish a game you get to go to funkatron and wander around and talk to everybody just like you did in game one now it's a little bit there's a little bit more there and it's a little more exciting, but you get to meet up with Lamont, the great Funkopotamus, and he offers you a, a power hat. You get to choose uh, which one of three you want out of like 30 or so that we have. And then from then on, every time you play the game after that, when you come out on a level, you get to choose to wear one of your power hats that uh, basically change your stats or give you some additional power and it kind of changes up the game a little bit so that um, every time you play the game in the future, it's a little bit different. And there, I heard there is a level zero also in this game. You bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the very first things people asked about. Uh, yeah, oddly enough. So it's there, and um, and of course, just like everything else, it's better. You know, mm-hmm. um, you can go um, sit in a hot tub, and there's a lot of conversations. One of the things we did is we put... Um, a little kind of RPG conversation style engine into this game. So you can actually talk to characters, all the friendly characters in the game, all the friendly characters sparkle in this game. So you can see who's, who's a friendly and who's not, but you can go up to any of them and talk to them and you get to choose what you want to say sometimes and they'll give you things or ask you questions. And so you can chat with the Hula girls. There's hula guys now on level zero as well as hula girls, you know. And you design um, all these infinite possibilities of conversation and et cetera. That's all you deciding that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I wrote all of that. Um, uh, that that's, that's one of the most fun parts of this whole project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love, I love doing that. Um, in fact, one of the fun things, too, about this new game <laughs> is we've got, um, instead of just Toe Gem and Earl, there's nine playable characters and they all interact differently with each other don't they they do yeah oh that's the thing God. i was gonna say you're exactly right yeah they all have their own dialogue so even when you're playing single player they say different mm-hmm. things it's especially fun when you're playing them in combinations because then they say different things to each other they each have their own kind of relationship so it's kind of fun to replay the game you know with different characters and it's even it's even kind of weird and funny to play we've got like you know, we we had done a new design for Toe Jam and Earl uh, to kind of update them a little bit and age them up. But one of the things uh, we heard from our players early on was uh, was we want them the way they looked before. You know, don't change yeah, them. <laughs> of course, so, nostalgia. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we made that um, very early on. We made that a um, we we ended up putting that into the game. So now you can choose to play in the um, the new Toe Jam or the original Toe Jam. Same with Earl. So it's kind of odd and funny when you've got two players and one's playing as the new Toe Jam, the other's playing as the original Toe Jam, and the two characters are talking to each other, and they're both a the little like person. confused <laughs> and put out by the fact that the other guy is like... It's like Back to the Future. So much like them. 
Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. If I had one complaint about the Toe Jam and Earl one is Earl. Just one. <laughs> he's just slow. Are, are they going to move a little bit faster? Yeah, well, Earl is still a little slower than um, than Toe Jam, certainly. But one of the things we added in this new game is there's all the characters have stats. So speed is one of the uh, five stats that you have. There's also like the amount you can carry in your inventory, your life bar, your present skill, and your luck. And um, so every time you get promoted by the wise man in the carrot suit, in, in the original game your life bar got a little longer and you got a new rank title and that was it in this game uh when you get promoted your life bar still gets longer but you also get your stats bumped um ah, there's so a spinner a and faster. three of your stats yeah three of your stats get bumped at random so you never quite know what's going to happen it's sort of in the spirit of this game is it's always a surprise but yeah so you your character can get faster there's also a variety of things in the game that um, help you get faster. We've got, like I mentioned, the power hats. We've got power hats that make you go faster, and we've also got a whole lot of presents that speed you up in a variety of ways. So, Is there still a randomizer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, That's the <laughs> worst gift, right? Like You can't get worse is, than a randomizer. You know, it's funny, though. I was going to really tone that down because I thought that was something that was really frustrating for people. And on our forum, people were like, no, 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 you can't. Oh, it makes the that. game don't, a perfect challenge. Is the rent- <laughs> and it, it teaches you patience. Honestly, when I was young, I was like, okay, there's two ways to do the game. Just lucky or actually do it the smart way. Save your money and don't open your gifts right. until you get to the carrot man and use the randomizer. It actually made me a more yeah. patient person today. <laughs> now, I have yeah. to talk about the music. Now, how does that baseline mm-hmm. not irritate me? Like, I can play the game a million times. It feels very repetitive, yet I never get annoyed by the baseline. Who came up with that? Um, yeah, well, that's nice to hear. I'm glad that's not driving you crazy um, after all these years. Um, I, You know, I, I, I came up with that. In fact, pretty much all the baselines um, at least originated with me. I do a lot of uh, singing in the shower and recording myself whenever I get um, ideas like that. So for about half of the original songs and pretty much all of the new songs, they start kind of with me doing that process of singing the different parts these days into my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And then I worked with really great talented musicians who could take my my vocal mess and uh, listen to it and go, oh yeah, I get what you're, I get what you're going with that, and then turn it into music. So back in those days, it was uh, John Baker and Mark Miller, and these days it was um, Burke Trishman and Cody Wright and Nick Stubblefield, the, and especially Cody, he was the bassist um, and guitar player for this new game, and he he did he he actually is a really amazing rising star in the music industry. He's like on the cover of Bassist magazine. He tours all over the world with all these famous people in the um jazz world and he um he started playing bass apparently because of toe jam and earl so he contacted me when we did our kickstarter and said hey can i come and play for you and i'll you know so i'll do it for free and i'll fly out there and um, oh wow and as soon as i found out who he was i yeah it's exactly what i said (laughs) like oh wow seriously oh my gosh yes a game like Toe Jam and Earl, obviously there's a huge nostalgia factor. So does that mean mm-hmm. that more adults or people my age, I'm 35, 
are going to be playing mm-hmm. this game than kids, or do you think it's going to be kind of like a 50-50 split? Oh, um, it'll certainly start with the adults and the, all the nostalgic people. I think pretty quickly they're going to bring in all of their, their kids and younger siblings and, uh, you know, sort of indoctrinate them in the ways of the funk, the new generation. But most of the fans out there are, are about your age, you know, people who uh, had it as a part of their childhood and have a connection to it already. Like, you know, a filmmaker, when they make a film, they go, oh, I, I don't just want it to be successful for the money. They say, if I make this film and it is successful, it will enable me to make more films. Is that the case in mm. the gaming world? Or is it like you're just going to be making games if even if this is a flop, not that it would be, obviously. Yeah, um, it's very, very true in the gaming world. You know, the whole entertainment industry is like that, uh, and and probably other industries as well. But especially in this business, that's so like um, hit driven uh, and so subjective. Uh, having a, having success just enables you to do do more, gives you more freedom to create down the road. So that's that's absolutely for people like me who just want to be building stuff it's incredibly valuable to have that so fingers crossed i you know i have other personal goals too for this game aside from just making money which of course would be nice but um i really want my probably my biggest single criteria is if people like you who played the original game who especially shared it with somebody they care about and are excited to relive that kind of those kind of feelings and that nostalgia if they play this new game and if you feel like yes this hits the spot this takes me back you know (laughs) and lets you reconnect with things that matter to you then that will be then i'll feel like we've succeeded so for the people who have contributed uh, to the Kickstarter, obviously they were super fans. You actually gave them a little taste of the game for like a, a two-week trial period, which actually I think turned into a, a month after it was all said and done. Mm-hmm. Did you get that feeling yeah. that y- you did reach your goal of, hey, these people are satiated? Yeah, you know, yes. So all indications are good. We, all the feedback we got was that we we're on track and we got a, a lot of, feedback of course of tweaky stuff that people wanted us to um change and so we did a lot of uh rebalancing and um modifying things and we got a lot of great ideas not all of which we had time to incorporate but some of which we did um so that was pretty invaluable for for a number of reasons but uh but yeah to answer your question i did feel like um I'm very hopeful from that. And also from PAX, we just came back from uh, PAX West in Seattle where we showed the game for four days and we had a constant stream of people, mostly fans, you know, of the game who were sitting down and playing it. And uh, everybody seemed to feel like, yep, that's, this is it. This is, <laughs> you know, this is the pure Toe Jam and Earl Blast I've been waiting for. So. And I guess unlike the film world, when you hear of a bunch of delays when a film's not getting released or, or if a studio drops it or something like that, it's usually a sign that the film's not going to do too well. But in the video game world, it's just getting better, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And if you look at most games that are really successful out there, you'll see that that's a very common thread, that they were delayed, they had time to cook. You know, it takes a while to 
actually iterate and to to learn the things that you don't know because you think you know it all you think you know you've got all the answers and you, you you rush to get it done and then get it out and it's kind of a disaster when you find out all of the things you didn't realize you know after <laughs> after the fact so I've, I've been grateful even though it's been kind of rough to have delays and to you know have to deal with a lot of technical issues that's also given us more time because while we're dealing with that we're also play testing and seeing other things that we want right. to tweak and fix so yeah you're quite right and on your website human nature it says something to the effect of you make games for people who don't like video games or who aren't aren't necessarily super into mm-hmm. video games why do you choose to do that is it because those are the games you like to play yourself are you not necessarily a typical gamer yeah um that's definitely one of the reasons mm-hmm. i i that 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 is kind of who i am and so i i'm i want to make games that you know resonate with me personally uh, i'm not a really hardcore gamer at a philosophical level it's also because um, I, I believe in people and in connecting people together. I want to make games that allow people to share experience, whether it's a cooperative multiplayer game or even not, still games that allow people to share the experience with other people in their lives who may not be hardcore gamers. There is, there is that aspect of gaming that can isolate people, mm-hmm. you know, and and I always find that a little bit unfortunate when there's so much potential to bring people together, and um, that's that's what I value. Yeah, because I find I'm Toe Jam and Earl's the only game I'm still obsessed with. Like I've grown out of all the other games. Yeah, I've been surprised at how how broad the appeal is for the property in general, uh, and this project has allowed me to more than ever to hear from fans all their personal stories and testimonials and the you know their childhood memories and all of that it's it's been great i'm grateful i get an opportunity to to see all of that firsthand well thank you so much for making this game i could not my wife by the way never played video games as a kid and she played toe jam and earl for the first time at age 27 and she loves it. Mm. And she's just as excited <laughs> nice, as I am. So nice. thank you so much. Like it really is, especially now that we have a child, it's a great thing for us to do while we're kind of trapped in our home, looking after the baby and not being able to go out as much. So it's a great yeah. thing that this game couldn't have come at a better time. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, I look forward to hearing uh, what you think after you've played for a little while. And um, Oh, yeah. I'm going to shoot yeah, you an email. Yeah, maybe your kid will be playing with you before too long. We've got toddler mode in there, too, and you can play all three of you at once. So, uh, get, yeah, get that'll be amazing. That <laughs> and last, yeah. l- lastly, it, I, what I loved when I was young about the original game was I found mm-hmm. when I beat a video game, I was always disappointed by the ending. I had the same feeling as you mm-hmm. always. It's always a little anticlimactic to hit the end and then just go oh it's done and yeah there's the it, credits like, it's over yeah right congratulations you finished and you're like oh so uh, yeah um this that same idea still holds true and we put some energy into making funkatron a little more interesting and we buried a few surprises uh there too now um i won't tell you where you can go but you can go somewhere and actually from Funkatron to the North Pole and go meet talk to Santa and get some cool stuff and um, oh Trixie I don't know if you remember Trixie the mermaid she's still there somewhere on Funkatron and 
all of the friends, your Funkatronian friends are there you can have conversations with, and you can unlock the new characters on Funkatron. They ask you, hey, can I go with you from now on? And you can choose who can join you on your future adventures. There's even, a, um, we even buried a whole, like, backstory between ToeJam and Earl. So after you've played the game a few times, when you're playing as Jam and Earl, they'll start talking to each other and you'll hear this whole backstory of theirs. And then when you get to Funkatron, there's something that's a little bit different there. There's a new character there that's part of that backstory. So we tried to really make um, wow. that ending experience kind of more, you know, just more satisfying. So you can unlock characters and then have them in perpetuity. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. New, the that's new amazing. player characters. Yeah. Like Earl's mom, for example, Flo. So you can uh, you meet her on Funkatron. And oh, then she's she not going to be there from the onset of the game. You have to beat it before you can get her. Yeah, that's ah, right. There's, okay. So six of the nine characters you have unlocked from the outset, and then three of them are hanging out on Funkatron. A Geek Jam, Flo, and Peebo are all waiting around on Funkatron. And, and so you have to finish the game at least three times if you want to unlock all three of them. And as far as ship pieces go, you still have to unlock pieces to the map. It doesn't tell you where the ship piece is located, does it? Because on YouTube, it seemed like some people were saying or complaining that the ship piece you can see right from when you get to the level where it is. Or is that new? Oh, no, it's the same. You, no, it's the same as before. I'm not quite sure what that was all about, but you, it's, it's the same. You still have to wander around until you find it. Okay, good. Um, yeah, once you once you uncover the tile um, that it's on on the map, you can see it on the map. Um, but you have to you have to go find it first. And sometimes it's a little hard to find, you know. Right? Yeah, of <laughs> Just course. Like before. Awesome. Yeah. Well, eleven year old Shane it can't believe that he's talking to you right now. Awesome. Eleven <laughs> <laughs> year old Shane. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, and I will uh, definitely. I'm going to send you an email to give you my little review of the game, which I'm sure is going to be glowing. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Really ha- have a good it. one, Greg. All righty. You too. Bye bye. Take it easy, Shane. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Please check out The Pedestal, our new podcast. We're so proud of it. We're so excited. Thank you, John Poplis, for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to Mr. Greg Johnson for coming on and talking to Shane about his new Toe Jam and Earl video game. Check that out when it comes out. Uh, obviously, thanks to Stephen Page, uh, who I love uh, listening to his music. I love listening to him sing. And I'm so um, grateful that he sat down and talked to me for as long as we chatted. Max, anything else? Uh, yeah, the artwork's put together by Jenna Gregory and Tara Paquette. Huge thank you to them. Thanks to Greg Stewart for letting us use his office today to record this podcast. Add us to Instagram and Twitter on Mike on Much, and that's all. At Mike on Much. Oh, what did I say? Yeah, I said on. Whatever. Whatever. Yeah. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week. Good time.